Come on, church, if you sense the victory, the power of Almighty God, let me hear you celebrate the goodness of God today. He is victorious. You are victorious. Come on and welcome all the campuses at every location. Celebrate and welcome everybody. Aren't you glad that we serve a God who not only experienced victory, but enables us to experience victory in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Aren't you glad that we serve a conquering, victorious God? Can I get an amen? Come on, let's pray together at all the campuses. Let's pray. Father, we love you today. We thank you that you are victorious. We thank you that you were victorious 2,000 years ago. But God, we thank you that when we tap into you, regardless of how times might feel, struggles might come, storms might come, in you, Lord God, we are victorious. We have the power of your son, Jesus, living in and through us. And God, I pray that if there is anyone at any campuses today who don't sense that power, that victory, oh God, I pray that by the end of the day, we will leave all of our campus locations dancing in, if you will, lavishing in the victory that you provide. We love you today. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Yeah. Come on at all the campuses. Let me hear you. Hey, aren't you, stay standing for just a moment at all of our campuses. Aren't you glad that we, that we get to gather on Sundays, week in and week out, and celebrate the power of the gospel? Aren't you glad that God has organized this thing so that once a week we can get together and celebrate? The Bible says, come on, this is the day. What? that the Lord has made, we shall rejoice and be glad in it. Yeah! Hey, um, we're in a series called Wrecked and Redeemed. John chapter 2 and chapter 2 of the book Wrecked and Redeemed. And this is how I start the chapter. So get ready if you haven't read this. This is not what you would probably tend to expect from a pastor. I started with these words. I love a good party. There, I said it. I love loud music. I love to dance. I love large groups of people. And I love to laugh. I guess that makes me a party animal. I love to party before I knew Christ. And admittedly, I still love to party. I hope I don't lose you in this chapter. Stick with me. You might have similar feelings buried within. Welcome to chapter 2, and welcome to Sumter, South Carolina. You may be seated. Well, really, this was the scene in 1988. It was on most weekends, Saturday and Sunday, when everybody would pull up here, literally hundreds of folks 
Most folks would be in their pickup trucks. They would pull in in their jacked up four wheel drive trucks. The tailgates would come down and the party would begin. And yet I must tell you that it wasn't very long before I started to realize the shallowness and the emptiness of those kinds of parties. I very quickly came to realize, even at the young age of 18 years old, that the parties that I was engaged in, the life that I was living, the things that I thought were giving me temporary moments, if you will, short seasons of happiness, they were actually running dry. I was like the prodigal that we read about in Luke chapter 15. And somewhere along the lines, I came to my senses and I realized that the parties of this world actually do not truly fulfill. And so as we lean into this series and we start to dig deeper and deeper into this gospel of John and into this book, Wrecked and Redeemed, it forces us to ask this question. Where are we actually finding joy? Are we looking for it in all the wrong places? Are we actually mistaking it for shallow forms, temporal forms of happiness? Or are we locking into the one and only true God who is able to give us a joy that will never, ever run dry? It's why at New Hope Church, there is an unmistakable joy that people experience when they pull onto any of our campuses. And that's because Jesus is the life of the party. And whenever a church puts Jesus on full display, and whenever a church is introducing people to Jesus, joy tends to flow. So as we just now begin to really get into this series, let the joy overflow at New Hope Church. Let us remember that every Sunday we gather or in our groups, it actually is a party where we're surrounded by people who we love and there is a contagious joy that settles in to our midst. Because never forget this church, Christianity is more caught than it is taught. In other words, it's contagious. The joy of the Lord is contagious. And so as you get into the book, I want you to look at the picture on page 69. It's one of my favorite images. It's titled, The Laughing Christ. And part of our problem is that we have this notion of Jesus kind of being this stoic prune, if you will. And I have to tell you that if that was the God that I was introduced to in that jail cell back in 1988, I don't know that he would have reached out and wrecked me and grabbed me. I, I don't know if I would have found him to be that compelling. But one of the things I loved about Jesus in those early days was that you see a Jesus, a God in the flesh who loved to have a good time. As a result, people flocked to Jesus. You could not keep them away from Jesus because in him they found joy, in him they found laughter, in him they found purpose, and in him they found a community of people that really showed them how to enjoy life. And you know what I've come to believe? That when the church really locks into Jesus in this true sense that we find in John chapter 2, and a church truly becomes contagious 
with the joy of the Lord, guess what? Just like it was 2,000 years ago, you can't keep people away. Because down deep, I think most people like to party. Many of them are just partying in all the wrong ways. It's time, church, that we lock back into Jesus, who is the life of the party, and we celebrate because there is joy unmistakable in our midst because of who he is, what he has done, and what he will do in the days ahead. And I hope we can all experience Jesus truly as the life of the party. In other words, I wouldn't trade one day of being a Christian for all of those years out in the far country. The joy of the Lord supersedes and transcends all the shallow happiness of this world. If you know what I'm talking about, can I get an amen? amen. I got to tell you guys, I am fired up to teach the word of the Lord today. I hope you know I'm fired up every Sunday. Like, you know that about me, but like today, it's, it's like at a whole nother level because John 2 is amazing. Open up your Bibles to John chapter 2. And if you, uh, I'm getting a lot of you asking me about this. We're out of books. You guys have bought them like crazy. We have a fresh big batch coming tomorrow. You can buy those today in advance. That way you have yours. You can pick it up at a campus this week or pick it up next Sunday. Go ahead and get it. Again, I'm not making a single penny off of these books, uh, giving it back to the church, but it's a very, very powerful chapter that we're tapping into today. Do you guys remember last week when I talked about Jesus came, John 1:14, full of what? Grace and truth. And do you guys remember how I was explaining that if when I went to jail for the sixth time in a seven-year period, if the chaplain had come and he had only given me grace and no truth, remember how I was talking last week about how I would have felt forgiven, but I would have been given no roadmap, no solid direction on how to take my life and live it and get out of the hellhole that I had created. Conversely so, I said, if the chaplain had beat me over the head with the Bible and I had truth, 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 but no grace, then I would have been, I would have felt like I had a roadmap to get out of the hellhole, if you will, but I would not have experienced forgiveness and probably would have continued to rebel. So John 1.14, last week, the stakes were sky high. This week, if I might say so, the stakes are sky high. And now that I think about it, every single week of this series, this is why you don't want to miss a single Sunday of this series, because in this series, it's your story, it's my story, and it's why new hope is the way it is. We've been very intentional from day one. And this topic today, which I have affectionately called the life of the party is an incredibly important topic because not only is our joy at stake, our credible witness or lack thereof is at stake. The truth is, the truth is Christians and the church has an image problem. We do. 
Whether we want to admit it or not, we do. You ask most folks out there today who are not Christians, you ask them to describe to you, give you some adjectives of what a Christian, quote-unquote Christian, is like, and you will typically get words like mean-spirited, angry, boring with a capital B, dull. Here's one. This is what our culture thinks about most of us. Irrelevant. You ask them what they think about the church. I'm talking about unchurched people, and they're going to tell you the very same thing. We have an image problem. When we ask people what they think about Christians in the church, what they should say about us is it's not true. What they should say about us is loving, kind. Imagine this, joyful, relevant, right? We have an image problem. And so from day one, New Hope Church has strived to make sure we keep joy up in the house. Because here's what I believe. Some of you have heard me say this before. I truly believe it is a sin to take the greatest news in all the world and bore people to death with it. Come on now. And, and how many of you left the church because you were bored out of your mind? Come on, you know you did. And I a little, little loud on that one. There's too much, too much amen in on that one. It's a sin to take the greatest news, the gospel, and bore people to death with it. The church Christians need a really good PR firm to get this straight. Many Christians and many churches portray a perpetual dirge of depression, defeat, and desperation. And I don't know about you, maybe it's just me, but if I had found a Jesus in the jail that was boring, if I had found a Jesus that that was stiff and stoic, if you will, very quote-unquote religious, I got to tell you, I don't know if I would have locked into him and followed him. Now, I know some of you like that image of Jesus, and that's why this chapter is going to push some of you. Let me just go ahead and say on the front end, if I offend you today, I love you. I love you, but listen, that's what I'm, that's what I'm called to do. I should comfort the afflicted and afflict the comforted. Can I get an amen? Yes, I should. And some of you love the image of Jesus that I'm going to counter and go right at today. Because in Jesus, October 23rd, 1988, what I found was a God-man who was not afraid to ruffle the feathers of religious people. And I don't know about you, but what I found in Christ was a companion, if you will. I know, I have rebel tendencies. But Jesus was a rebel. The people who got on Jesus' last nerves were religious people. That should cause you concern. The Pharisees got on Jesus' last nerve, and they were some of the most religious people on the planet, which is why John chapter 2, put yourself in my shoes. It was the second chapter of Scripture I had ever read. Remember, the chaplain started me in John 1. I get to John chapter 2, and I stumble upon these amazing words of Scripture. If you have your Bibles, 
Go ahead and open them to John chapter 2. It's just 12 short verses, but it is a power-packed passage. Here we go. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. <laughs> Woman? <laughs> now, I make a point in the book to unpack that exegetically. It sounds like Jesus is being harsh with his mama, um, but it's not all that. But basically, you can't deny that. Woman, why do you involve me? I mean, basically, woman, I know. Like, I'm God. <laughs> I know, okay? <laughs> Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. Underline, underline ceremonial washing. Underline, highlight it, that's important. Each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his, what church? His glory. And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. Now, if that's a passage that doesn't grab your attention, I don't know what will. The narrative of Jesus turning water into wine is a John Gospel-only miracle. Remember how I've been talking to you about the differences between the Gospel of John and the synoptics? You don't find this story in the synoptic Gospels. This is unique to John. In John's Gospel, this was the first public miracle, first public act of ministry. This is key. Remember, I've been telling you each week, and I'll probably say this each week, John is teaching us theology. He's helping us get our thinking straight with God. Now, check this out. John deliberately calls it a sign. A what, church? A sign. I love all the note-taking. Love it, love it, love it. We are in a learning mode these days. The synoptic gospels call these events, if you will, miracles, not John. John calls them signs. Did you catch it out loud? Ready? All of our campuses, come on, go. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the, underline it, first of the signs, let's continue, through which he revealed his, underline it, circle it, highlight it, whatever, and his disciples believed in him. 
Now, in the Gospel of John, don't miss this. They're not called miracles. They're called signs. And the signs are always performed by Jesus to put on full display his glory. His what? Glory. This is a, I'm going to use this word a little bit because it's hard for me to keep saying John's gospel, John's gospel. So I'm going to teach you a new word. It's going to sound difficult, but by the time the series is over, you'll get it. Johannine. When I refer to the Johannine community, that's John's gospel. Or when I refer to the Johannine gospel, that's John's gospel. Or Johannine people, those are the people. It was a unique community that John lived in and ministered to. In the Johannine narrative, the word sign is incredibly important. I put a, put a little graphic together for you. Last week, the word, the logos, came down from heaven. Remember? The pre-existent son of God just didn't come along 2,000 years ago, has existed as far back as your mind can imagine and will exist as far into the future as your mind can imagine. The word, logos, existed with God from the very beginning. Now watch this. The word came down and became what church? Flesh, full of what? Grace and truth, full of grace and truth. The flesh performed signs and the signs revealed glory. Are we tracking? The glory demands worship. Or rejects worship, rejects God, and perishes. John 3.16. This is the theological framework that John is establishing from moment one. The word became flesh. The flesh, Jesus, started his ministry. He performed, in John's gospel, not miracles, but signs. The signs always, always, according to John, Reveal his glory. Listen, when a person encounters the glory of God, it demands worship or rejection. And this is what he is getting us to understand. Now, to understand all this, you have to understand this word glory. Glory runs throughout the Bible in all kinds of variations, around 14 to be exact. But I want to talk to you about the two most popular variations of the word glory. Here we go. The first one is glory as an attribute. As an attribute. The most common use of the word glory in the Bible is to describe, what's this word right here? Describe the what? And majesty of God. Most of you fully understand this attribute. God is glorious. Can I get an amen? God is awesome. He's majestic. He's holy. He's divine. That is glory as an attribute. Very, very popular in the Bible. Here's the second most important popular form of the word glory. It's a verb. It's a verb. It's something you do. When used as a verb, glory means to put confidence in and boast or praise God. So if I glory in God, I'm putting confidence in God. As I, as I glory in his holiness, I am praising his name. This is what we do every Sunday, but FYI, we should not do it just on Sundays. We should glory in God every single day of the week from sun up to sundown. We glory in God. 
because he is glorious. We turn it into a verb and we glory in who he is. Now watch this, this is key. If you're following me so far, say bring it. Here we go, here we go, here we go. Wherever you tend to attach glory in life is where you will find your sense of joy. Wherever you tend to attach glory in your life, that is where you will experience or not joy. Let me unpack it for you a little bit. If you attach glory to your titles, in your titles is where you will find your joy. But I got news for you. In time, your titles will find you void and empty and suffering from loss of joy. If you put your glory in your kids, which this is very important in this day and age. Come on, parents, listen in. You put all your glory in your kids, that's going to be fine for a while. But they're going to grow up and leave you. And your glory will walk out of the door, and so will your joy. If you put your glory, come on, in your car, it is in your car where you will find your joy. I'm talking to some of you. But go ahead, I will. But sooner or later, check it out, your car's gonna break down. Are you gonna run out of gas? And so will your joy. Again, wherever you tend to attach glory is what? Where you find your sense of joy. So listen, 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 listen. Oh, listen. Which means to the extent to which your entire existence, what you do from when you wake up and go to bed, what you do for entertainment, how you spend your resources and your money, what you do for a living, how you engage your marriage and parenting and everything else involved in your home, to the extent to which you do all of that, listen, to the glory of Almighty God is the extent to which God will unleash signs in your life. Why? Because again, according to John, signs have one purpose, one purpose, and that is to put on full display the glory the attribute, the splendor, the holiness of God and therefore God's people to then glory in who he is. So as you look at John's gospel, the life of the party, water to wine, John chapter two, here's some key things you wanna make note about the glory of God. Number one, it's the glory of revelation. Don't need to spend a lot of time unpacking this, but here's what you need to know. John is setting out straight from the beginning of his gospel to reveal to us who Jesus is. Make no mistake about it. The Johannine author has an agenda and the agenda is to convince everybody who reads this gospel that Jesus Christ is God. Not just a good human being, not just somebody like Muhammad 
or Confucius or Martin Luther King Jr. or a woman like Mother Teresa or Billy Graham. No, no, no. John is saying from the beginning, if you're going to get into this glory, you better settle in your spirit early on. Jesus is God. Come on now. He is God. This is key. Remember Philippians 2? I'm not going to bounce much out of John's gospel during this series because John is rich enough, as you're starting to see. But do you remember Philippians 2? Jesus, who being in the very nature God, who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but instead became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God the Father Almighty exalted him so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that you are Lord of all to the glory of God the Father. Everybody will start to try to convince you, and this is getting popular in this day and age, they will try to convince us that Jesus, he was just a good old chub. He was just a good man. He, 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 because here's why. Even the most radical scientists today, and as I've told you before, I'm not anti-science. I was a pharmacy major. I love science. I believe science can only take you so far. And then there's God. But here's where I'm saying with that. Even, even scientists, even the most his, you know, radical historians will acknowledge today that there's no denying. People used to deny that Jesus even existed. Historically speaking, there's no denying anymore that Jesus existed. Therefore, what the world will try to convince us of is, oh, yeah, he existed, but he was just a good man. He was a good old boy. To which John would say, bless your heart. <laughs> he was and he is God Almighty. Oh, I got some people who love God up in here today. Make no mistake about it. Number two, so the first one is what? The glory of what? Write this down. The glory of extravagance. The glory of extravagance. I keep preaching like this, I'm gonna need one of my holy sweat rags. I left it in the back. <laughs> I just did that for a select few among us at all of our campuses. The first was the glory of revelation. The second is the glory of extravagance. Listen closely. This is the hallmark of the kingdom of God that Jesus points to on many occasions, but never more so than in the Johannine gospel. The party is in full swing. Anybody else like to party? You don't know whether to be truthful to that question in church or not. But I'm going to hopefully reshape your understanding of partying today. The party is in full swing. The celebration of the marriage is going well. And then disaster strikes. They run out of wine. Now, for some of you, that would not be a problem. This was a problem at the wedding in Canaan. And here's why. Weddings in the Middle East were big deals. 
You think we do weddings big in the West? And I think we do. I mean, I think we do a good job of weddings in the West. But it typically revolves around, you know, six months of the bride freaking out, trying to get all the details done while the husband acts like he gives a flip. (laughs) Then you have a wedding rehearsal. And then you have a wedding and it's done, baby. It's honeymoon time. Can I get an amen? In the, in the East, in, in the Middle Eastern world, weddings went on not for one day, not for two days, not for three days. Normally they went on for seven days. They were massive parties. I experienced this in 1997. I was in uh, Palestine doing a Middle East travel seminar with Duke Divinity School, and we were staying in this hotel for about four nights. The first night, I saw the music. They came through the lobby. The music was going. They had instruments. They were dancing. They, I mean, they were, they were partying. They went into this big room, and I said, what is going on? They said, it's a wedding. The next night, the same group of people. I said, what are they doing tonight? It's a wedding. The third night, what are they doing? The wedding went on for an entire week. We can't understand it, but weddings were a big deal, and if If you were to run out of wine, like some of our weddings today, that would be a disaster for some of you. But over there, it was a big, big deal. And on the third day, a faux pas happened of epic proportions. Disaster occurred and they ran out of wine. There were six stone jars. I tried to get them all the same size. I couldn't. And I tried to get them to uh, hold 20 to 30 gallons, but they, I can't find them that big in this area. But this was the best I could do. There were six of them. Look at what happens in the Bible. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for, I told you to mark this earlier, ceremonial washing. Each holding from how many? 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Now I want you to pay close attention. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. That is no small detail. Jesus could have looked at the stone jars, could he not? We just said he was God. He could have looked at him and said, bam. And they turned into a Merlot or something, a cab, whatever the case may be. He could have done it with his word. This is God. He created the world with his words. Remember Genesis 1. He spoke it into being. But what does he do? He tells the servants to fill up the jars. Listen to me. Some of you are deeply desiring miracles in your life. John calls them signs. As we've said, you're desiring miracles in your life, but you aren't willing to do anything to expose yourself to the signs of God. Listen to me. This is really, really important. This was 20 to 30 gallons per jar. You do the math, you know what was going on. But check this out. Often the miracle, the sign that you are desiring will require you to get off your derriere and participate in what God wants to do in your life for his glory. And many of you are sitting there and you're going, I want God to do miracles in my life, but he he just won't do it. I don't believe all this stuff. He, I prayed and prayed and prayed. And he's not doing anything in my life. He must not be real. Here's an idea. 
get off your butt. Put God's glory on full display in your life. Serve him from sun up to sundown. Honor him with your financial resources. Honor him with your sexuality. Honor him with your parenting. Honor him with your vocational world. And I'm telling you, God will start to unleash signs in your life like you have never even begun to imagine. God wants us to participate in what he's doing in the world. How many of you have ever heard of this poem. I remember the first time I heard it. It's really powerful. I was at a beach house and I saw it appropriately so. It's called Footprints in the Sand. Powerful, powerful poem. You've heard, I see a lot of heads shaking. If you haven't, you'll get to see it right now. But basically, it says this. One night I had a dream as I walked along the beach with my Lord across the dark sky flashed scenes from my life. For each scene, I noticed two sets of footprints in the sand, one belonging to me and one belonging to the Lord. And, and then the writer says, it was the last scene where my life flashed before me. But as I looked back over the footprints in the sand, I noticed that many times along the way, the path of my life, especially at the very lowest and saddest times, there was only one set of footprints. This really troubled me. So I asked the Lord about it. Lord, you said once I decided to follow you, you'd walk with me all the way. But I noticed during the saddest and most troublesome times in my life, there was only one set of footprints. Lord, I don't understand why. When I needed you the most, you would leave me. He whispered, my precious child, I love you and will never leave you. Never, ever. During your trials and testings, when you saw only one set of footprints, it was then that I carried you. So sweet, so lovely, makes us feel all good inside. I want to tell you about another poem. It's not called Footprints in the Sand. It's called Butt Prints in the Sand. One night I had a wondrous dream. One set of footprints there was seen. I know you can hardly read it, so I'll read it for you. It's a bad resolution. The footprints of my precious Lord, but mine were not along the shore. But then some stranger prints appeared, and I asked the Lord, what have we here? These prints are large and round and neat, but, the, but Lord, they are too big for feet. My child, he said in somber tones, for miles I carried your butt alone. I challenged you to walk in faith, but you refused and you made me wait. You disobeyed, disobeyed you would not grow the walk of faith you would not. No, so I got tired, I got fed up, and there I dropped you on your butt. Because in life there comes a time when one must fight and one must climb, when one must rise and take a stand or leave your butt prints in the sand. That'll preach. <laughs> I'm all about the footprints. It's so sweet. <laughs> Listen to me. Watch this. The purpose of the sign is to put on full display the glory of God as an attribute 
and a verb. And often God will unleash his signs and we have to have nothing to do about it but sit back and marvel at him and worship him and adore him. But quite often, quite often, God is asking you and he's asking me to join him in this mysterious dance of the incarnation of almighty God on planet earth so that as I work with God and I dance with God and he dances with me and I learn to listen to that still small voice and that Holy Spirit and I put some action to my faith. It is when God sees me put action to my faith that he says, there's a man, there's a woman that my glory will be on full display and he starts to unleash. As Matthew, Mark, and Luke would say, miracles. And John would say, signs. The six stone jars at 20 to 30 gallons per jar would together hold about 120 to 180 gallons of wine. That is anywhere between 800 to 900 bottles of wine. This was a party. And Jesus was teaching us a very important point. And might I add, not so much a point about alcohol. If you focus on the alcohol, you miss the miracle. What Jesus is teaching us here in this first miracle in John chapter 2 is that we serve a God of lavish proportions. We serve a God of the extravagance. And some of you, like me, you've been looking for love. You've been looking for joy. You've been looking for contentment. You've been looking for peace, passion, and purpose in all the wrong places. Because check it out. When the lights go out and you turn to Jesus, that is when the real party begins. That is when you find joy that is overflowing, that is over the brim. The kingdom of God is about the extravagant love and provision of Almighty God. The glory, what was the first one? Is about what? Is about what? Revelation, you got it. The second is about extravagance. Third and lastly, the glory of victory. It's the glory of victory. Get ready. This is going to rock your world. I'm about to show you something in scripture that I'm certain you probably have never, ever thought of. To see this, we have to go back to the beginning of John chapter two. But like John, I saved the best till last, but I'm gonna take you all the way back to verse one, a, the very first part of verse one. On the, on the what? Third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. On the what? One more time, like you mean at all of our campuses. What? Third day. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. On the third day, Jesus turned water to wine. Now, if you study commentaries and things of the like, or maybe you've been to seminary, you will know that some scholars will try to convince us that this third day was actually a reference from the time of Jesus calling Philip and Nathaniel, John 1, 43 through 51. That is a horrible interpretation. Nothing could be further from the truth when you read John's gospel. I'm not buying it even for a second. Write this down, I'm telling you. The third day reference actually alludes to Jesus's death. Jesus's defeat over death and his bodily resurrection 
on the third day. <laughs> Come on. Let's, John is very intentional. Remember, he wrote this gospel when? 75 to 90 AD. He's had time to think about all this. He's had time to process it. He's clearly teaching us good theology. John is letting us know in the very beginning that it was on the third day in Jesus' finest hour that he defeated death forever and the victory of God became ours. I don't, I don't know if I have time to do this. I'm gonna do it anyway. Go to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. John chapter 12. Oh my word, this is good. In John chapter 12, verse 23. Look at this. It's not gonna be on the screens because it was not a part of the plan. Jesus replied, the hour has come. The what? The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. See it? Glory. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life will find it. Whoever serves must follow me, and where I am, my servant will also be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. The hour, this language, this is why you want to circle the hour in John 2 or John 12, if you turn there, and write out in the margins of your Bible, whenever John mentions the hour, he's talking about the hour, the time period, where Jesus Christ hung on a cross for you, bled a sinner's death for you so that your sins could be forgiven forever and you can tap into the glory of God, i.e. the victory of God and no longer live a defeated, depressing life, but rather live a victorious life in Jesus Christ who has come that you might have life. This is why I love that song that the worship pastors wrote and we just sang before the message. Remember it? It's called victory. We serve a victorious God. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my what? My hour has not yet come. The wine, let me teach you one more thing and we're done, but oh my Lord, this is good. The wine would represent his blood and oh, would be infinitely more greater for our redemption than ceremonial cleansing. Remember earlier on I told you to mark that ceremonial cleansing? These were used for cleansing. The water was used as an Old Testament rite to cleanse them of their dirt, yes, but also their sin. Jesus looks at them, instead of saying, bam, and turning them to wine, he told the servant, servants, get off your rear end and fill them up with water. And then he mysteriously and powerfully and miraculously turned the water into high quality, extravagant amounts of wine. But this is what is so stinking cool. In John's theology, the wine 
becomes a foretaste. It becomes that which would represent his blood. And where they had to keep tapping into the water in the jars to cleanse them. Once you tap into the blood of Jesus, you are cleansed forever. He has washed away your sin. Now watch this. I got to move on. I got to move on. I can't tear you there. All this points to the third day of Jesus' resurrection. Now watch this. The wine would become a part of Holy Communion. Except for those of us in the Protestant church (laughs) that have turned it into Welch's grape juice. (laughs) Jesus taught. This is not in my notes. I'm about to get in trouble up in here. Oh, my Lord. If you listen closely, you'll probably hear a few people leaving our church over this. <laughs> Jesus turned the water to wine, and we turned it back into grape juice. Now, I understand alcohol is tricky. We've got to be careful. And I have a staff member who just, just, just lost a brother to alcoholism. Alcohol can kill you. Let me state that for the record. But in the biblical narrative, the wine would become a part of Jesus who would lift the bread, break the bread, I should say, lift the wine and say, take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Take what? Drink, this is my blood, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sin. So the wine would become a part of Holy Communion, a sacrament representing the blood of Jesus shed on the cross, washing our sins away and freeing us to experience victory and true joy in the Lord. John. John's gospel. You're going to see this every single week. You're going to, you're going to understand the Bible like you never had before. John is like a treasure hunt. He's dropping little clues along the way. And once you start to understand John's theology, you start to see a book fit together that is absolutely mind-blowing. The change of water to wine is a miracle, listen, that serves as a sign that the kingdom of God has drawn near in Jesus. And so I want to just wrap up and give us a chance to worship God. To give us a chance to take the glory. Remember, it's an attribute and it's a what? Verb. To give us a chance to worship God. To exalt him. Again, try not to head for the door. Sometimes we do that when the preaching is over. No. This is when the worship takes over. Remember the diagram? You got word becoming flesh. Word was at the top and worship. What we do every Sunday is we do word and worship. Come on, say it with me. Word and worship. Word and worship. We're about to worship him. Because he is a God who is all about extravagance. Not extravagant alcohol. Again, if you focus on the alcohol, you're missing the point. He's extravagant in his love for you. He's extravagant in his joy that he will give you. He's extravagant in unleashing signs and miracles in your life if you will put his glory on full display. 
So why don't we pray together? And then we're going to stand. And we're going to sing. Come on, all heads bowed, eyes closed. Come on. Lord Jesus, thank you for the gospel of John. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the revelation that he is who the word says he is. Thank you for the extravagant way in which you love us. Thank you for the victory that is ours in you and you alone. You are holy. Your splendor and your majesty takes my breath away. Father, thank you for the glory. Thank you for a church that is really leaning in and studying this book with me. Father, I pray that if there's any single person here, even one who doesn't know you today, who has not experienced your extravagant love, who has not experienced the victory that belongs to them in and through your son, Jesus. If that is you today, here's how you experience what John 3 says, which we will look at next week. You experience what it means to be born again. You just say, Lord Jesus, I need you in my life. Lord Jesus, I need some victory. I need some signs. So I receive you today. Come into my heart, come into my mind, come into my life. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. I will follow you from this day forward to the best of my ability, meaning, Lord God, I will do my very best to let my life, what I say, what I think, what I do, how I live, bring glory to Jesus and Jesus alone. Save me today. Save me, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.